Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 130 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it is the Hercules episode of the SLS Cast. And no, not the mythical Hercules. And no, not the uh, professor, the nutty professor. Hercules, Hercules. No, no, not that either. No, ladies and gentlemen, it's Lockheed's. Hercules, that's right. The four-engine, turboprop, military transport aircraft is called the C-130. That's right, folks. And with that, a little bit of military aircraft knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us from L.A., where he is now the proud owner of probably the only XEL-1 by Sony, it is... Tim! That's right, sir. At Sony XLE One, what what is? I'm not familiar with that project. The Sony XEL One XL, you see, the XEL One. It is the world's. It was was. I guess would be the better thing. The world's first production OLED TV, and at a whopping eleven inches, and a mere. $2,500, it too could have been yours. Wow. So I guess you didn't have the $2,001 to purchase one, huh? I don't know. I mean, uh, it was pretty much just a novelty. It was a novelty product for them. Really more just to just say, hey, we have the first OLED TV. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think most people are willing to pay $2,500 for an 11-inch TV. Is there one product... That if you had a million dollars, or okay, we'll we'll say ten million dollars, that you would just buy just for the shit of it, just because you could. What would that product be? Like a just a complete waste of money product. Yeah, like there are people out there that would buy themselves a toilet that is made out of bacon. You can't eat it because you're shitting and you're, you're pooping all over the bacon or you're peeing all over the bacon, so you can't eat it. And I really don't know what what's so appetizing about eating bacon in the shape of a toilet. You know what I would buy? Uh, here's what I would buy. I would probably buy, because as you know, I'm a Disney file and I have a complete problem with Disney. I think I would probably just flat out buy the most ridiculous top tier Disney Vacation Club package. I think there's the most ridiculous top tier longest term possible one. Those things literally run like if you pay for them up front and buy out the whole contract. There's they're like four or five hundred thousand dollars for like the the top highest one, and it's a complete waste of money. Is it like a you, lifetime? You're basically paying. Membership? No, no, it's only for like it's only for like ten years or ten ten to twelve years at the maximum. Really? Yeah. Wow. And then you really and you're really only buying it out for like two weeks a year. And you still have to, because it's just basically glorified timeshare. So, you know, you're dropping four, five hundred thousand dollars to just stay in a hotel. It and, and it doesn't even include park tickets. You still have to buy all the park tickets and all the food and all that kind of stuff. You're just literally spending five hundred thousand dollars on a hotel room. Hmm. At any rate, though, how you been doing? I how was your week? My week was fun filled. I met the edge, U two's the edge this past week. Nice. Did you get to put your feet on his face? I you know, I got to put my feet all everywhere else, but not not his face. 
I foot job, huh? All right. <laughs> God. Well, yeah. Didn't they, they, he wrote that one song about my wonderful foot jobs. They say it's about Mandela, but it's actually about foot jobs. <laughs> I, I forget. Nice. I am now a proud parent of a Sony gaming console, which is exciting and a, and a pretty big life choice for myself, I must say. Um, I thought, hey, I really want a 3D Blu-ray player, and I thought, well, shit, I can spend 150 bucks or 100 bucks, or probably about 150 bucks on a really good Blu-ray player, or I can spend an extra 250 bucks and get myself a video game console. Why not? So I did. Let's see. I went to a Spoon concert last night by myself, which was a lot of fun. So it's been a pretty exciting past week for me, if uh, I may say so myself. And on top of that, I spent my bachelor Friday night eating pizza and watching the Annie remake. (laughs) That's awesome. Let's see. My week has been just pretty much standard. Nothing really special going on at all. Uh, which has been nice because it's actually given me a lot of uh, enough time to reflect on your life. Just really watch the movies. I mean, it's yeah. usually been up through even till we were moving and everything and trying to get settled over the last couple of weeks. It's been like just trying to cram in the time to go to the movies or, and watch the movies and stuff. And it's been nice the last week to really just sit back and enjoy the movies at a nice leisurely pace and, you know. So yeah. What was the first movie you watched at your new home? Oh my I mean, gosh, it's like a major no. stepping stone, you know? It's how you christen the house. Is that you have to strategically pick the first movie you view. And and it's going to sum up the rest of your uh, life in that sad house. If it was Wolf Cop. I don't think it was Wolf Cop. Oh, I hope not. That's going to be the precedent. <laughs> Um, the Mad Max movies. It was Mad Max was the first movie I watched here. Okay. Okay. Well, that's better. <sighs> so, anyways, email got a little bit. Do, of, do you, yeah. Oh, is that what, yeah. what you're about to get to? Can I just what? cut you yeah, off? I was gonna. I was just just gonna kind of segue into the oh. news of the weird. Oh. Oh. The, oh. Yeah. Yeah. We got that. Okay. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got a little bit of news of the weird here for us uh, from Unilab.co.uk. Uh, via Sam Ridgeway. It, it's kind of like the justice porn files, but still a little bit of news of the weird. Dog meat trader accidentally kills himself demonstrating new slaughter weapon. Y- you know those jokes that people ta- tell uh, about Chinese food and it's made from dogs and cats and stuff like that? Sadly, in China, that. It, it, it's not a joke. I shall explain. To be fair, Marvin Zindler did uncover something of that nature. I think what was it, in the eighties or nineties mm. in Houston. He went to the back of like a Vietnamese restaurant, and there were there was cat skins laying on, or hanging from a wall or ceiling or something like that. Oh wow! Oh, that's that's fun. He found more than just slime in that ice machine. <laughs> Indeed. Is that a cat hair? All right, so a rogue dog meat trader in China accidentally killed himself while demonstrating a new weapon used to kill dogs for their meat. The man shot himself in the leg with the poisonous dart while showing other gang members how the weapon is used. He died on the way to the hospital. (laughs) 
Police were alerted to the incident, and as a result, five other black market gang members were arrested. According to reports, they later admitted to killing more than 1,000 dogs, freezing them, then selling the meat. Damn. What, what kind of dog? Do they go into- Doesn't say. Oh. Like, because if it was Poodle, I'd be like, you know, okay, that's that's fine. I mean, I would never want to put that in my mouth, let alone look at it, smell it, or touch it. Or be in the <laughs> same room with one, even when it's dead. But then if you move into like, oh, well, you know, it's a, it was a lovely golden retriever, then tear, a tear would, would, would be forming in my eye and then fall out. Poodle? No, not at all. Uh, let's see. So, yeah, so there's some fun news of the weird, kind of justice porn as well, but whatever. Um, and then before we also get into the real news news, um, I guess it's time for our, our specialty segment, Replies in Six Weeks or Less. We actually have an email um, from the 16th of May, so it goes to show that I didn't check email last week like I was supposed to. <laughs> Oops. All right, so I apologize for that, but we did. Uh, we get a we got an email from uh, Diana Weeks. Uh, she follows us on Twitter, and she sends us this lovely bit of email. It says, "Hey guys, really enjoyed hearing my friends from Midnight Movie Nights, Johnny White Trash, and Raphael and R two on your show. Hope you do that again. I agree with the bad endings being good. I need that reminder as I get close to closer to finishing Sons of Anarchy." On Netflix. Yours truly, Diana. And she's got a little quote here at the bottom. Stop and breathe in deep. Blow out the bad. So that's cool. So thank you, Diana. We appreciate that. We're glad that you enjoyed that. And we are definitely thankful that our friends over at uh, We Are Not Here to Please You and uh, Team White Trash and, of course, Midnight Movie Nights were able to clue us in. Back on was episode 127, I think. Can look that up real quick. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, episode one twenty six. It was episode one twenty six. That when we sounds even why better. Dark endings matter. Yeah. So outstanding, folks. All right. Well, there you go. So I guess if we have nothing else, shall we get to the real stuff, sir? Do you ever find yourself sniffing and then you realize, God, I can really smell the odor coming off my foot. My feet smell. Yes, we, let's go to the news. Here we go, folks. It is the news. Yeah. All right. First up, coming to us from Geek Tyrant dot com. Via Joey Power. If we want original films, we have to support them. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, this is going to seemingly kind of take a roundabout here, but this does actually have a lot to do with Tomorrowland. Here we go. Every time I report on a remake or sequel being made, again, uh, pulling from the article, I hear a lot of moans and groans from movie fans wanting to see Hollywood develop more original content. I would love nothing more than to see more films based on original ideas, but making these kinds of films is a gamble in the entertainment industry. Studios are scared to invest in films that don't already have a built-in market. When these studios make a sequel to a popular franchise, they know they're going to make a shitload of money. They don't have that feeling with the security... Uh, they don't have that feeling of security with original film productions. 
Article goes on, Disney recently bet big on an original project called Tomorrowland, which was inspired by the theme park attraction as well as the imagination and dreams of Walt Disney himself. The movie was directed by Brad Bird from a script by Damon Lindelof, and for the most part, I really enjoyed the movie and thought it was an incredibly fun sci-fi adventure. Again, this is from the article. Even though the general concept had a built-in Disney market, it didn't do as well as Disney had hoped. It took the number one box office spot during Memorial Day weekend with over $41 million, but the studio was hoping for at least $50 million. The budget for the film was $180 million, and I'm sure it will eventually make a profit, but not the kind of profit that would inspire them to want to try and make another big-budget original film. Um, let's see here. going to jump here ahead. I am a big fan of Bird and the projects that he's done, and for me, this movie felt like one of his animated feature films, only it was live action. What's funny about this is that I truly believe that if Tomorrowland would have been developed as an animated feature film in Bird's classic Iron Giant animation style with the exact same script, everyone would have loved it. One of the reasons why I liked Tomorrowland so much is because it had that same tone and vibe as The Iron Giant. It had that childhood sense of wonder and imagination that some movies have the power to tap into and bring out in me. This is one of those films. It's why I love going to the movies. I'm not sure why some people couldn't see that in Tomorrowland, because it was there, for me at least. And uh, he goes on to say... Then, of course, there's the argument that the original movies that Hollywood releases shouldn't be crap. I guess that just all comes down to a person's taste in movies, but at least there are talented people out there trying something new and different. We should at least acknowledge that these people are trying to break free from the Hollywood trap of remakes and sequels. The audience decides what movies Hollywood makes, and that's whatever they are willing to spend money on. And right now, it doesn't seem to be on original film ideas. The power is in our hands to make the change. What do you think, Tim? I liked his. I, I liked that he was comparing directly to Iron Giant, which is something that you mentioned briefly when you were talking about Brad Bird and how you felt it. Tomorrowland was like his disappointment, and it, it, I think that if if it had been animated, people would have people would have liked it. I think if it was animated, it would have alleviated some of the problems that people had with the movie. Not all the problems. Uh, One of my big problems was all the exposition. You know, the movie was telling you how to feel, what to feel, and what to expect. You still would have had that if the exact same script was used, but uh, but it would turn out to be an an animated film. But with animation, you're able to tweak people's performances. You know, you don't have to worry about live action clashing with CGI or you know, any computer-generated uh, effect or, or blue screens or anything like that. So you're able to tweak stuff and play a little bit more around with special effects and one's imagination. So to be fair, I think it's it's safe to say that, I mean, there are a number of movies out there that if they were animated, they would have been a lot better. Uh, but I think saying that Tomorrowland would have, like everybody would, or most people would say that Tomorrowland was a great movie if it was animated, I don't know. I I, I kind of disagree with that. Uh, see, I I I tend to 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 agree with this, uh, with this because because if th- there's a lot of things that while it's not as expo- it's certainly not as exposition heavy in Iron Giant on that. Oh we right, can definitely yeah. agree. Yeah, but it was just using the visuals of the animation. 
to augment the exposition that would have been required in a live-action film. I think it's a lot harder. I, for example, do you remember the movie Soldier? Kurt Russell movie Soldier. It was back in like 94, sure. 95? Yeah. Okay. People really gave that movie a lot of flack because of lack of dialogue. And yet, at the same time, people really praised Kurt Russell's performance because he didn't speak. He had to do it. He had to do virtually everything through facial expression and um, and, and body image, basically, you know, and presence. And I think that's the thing is that there's. I, I think it's. It's easier to get away with not having exposition in animated film versus doing it in live action. And while you definitely don't want to cross a line, again, we agree, I think that I, it's just kind of sad that I think people are going to take away from this, like what you did. You know, you called it Brad Bird's disappointment. And I don't, I guess I just don't see, I don't find it to be as disappointing as you. And I, and I just think it's interesting because. I'm not saying that we should just support anything and everything simply because it's original, because otherwise you could end up with a buttload of shit coming down the pipe because, oh, well, they're just going to go see it because it's, it's new. But I guess in this particular instance, I, I, don't, I guess I just don't think it's the, you know... Apparently, it's not just me that likes it. There's well, somebody yeah. else out yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people out there that do like <laughs> Tomorrowland. But the thing with exposition with Tomorrowland is that all of it was in the script. You know, it was dialogue that was spoken by the actors. So if it was animated, it would still be in the movie via the dialogue. And with every movie, there's going to be some exposition. But with good movies, the exposition... You know, it's not as obvious, or when it's obvious, it's detrimental to the story, and it doesn't pop up all the time. But with Iron Giant, obviously, if they had the technology to do this that movie with real people uh, and actually pull it off, I mean, the the exposition they would have is what was in the, the spoken exposition in the animated film. So it's just like what what I appreciated about Tomorrowland was that. Brad Bird had a scope and he had this vision and you can definitely feel like his passion of storytelling and all that stuff in the movie. It was just, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to rehash. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not it. trying to rehash that. I just, I mean, I, I, I feel like the, he, I just feel like the author had a valid point in saying this, this wasn't, this was not a, you know, a crappy movie. I agree that it did have flaws and everything, and it was reflected in our scores last week. You gave it a 2.75. I gave it a 3.75. So clearly, um, it's not the worst movie you've ever seen. It didn't quite hit the like it status for you, but it was definitely better than okay. I definitely enjoyed it more. And that's fine. I'm not trying to, to change. But I just think that this is this is a movie that that does exemplify that problem. And there's also, for those who want to do further research on it, this article does reference a Variety article that uh, we don't have time to go into, but Variety also does have an article about it. It's called Tomorrowland, uh, Exposing Hollywood's Originality Problem. Um, It's also a good read. Um, And it is not, not, that one is not a glowing review of Tomorrowland or anything of that nature. Um, It points out the flaws that Tomorrowland had, but it also goes in and discusses how 
you get an original everybody's clamoring for original movie and then when they get the original movie they start bashing it so then everybody stands around wondering why we don't have any original movies. well but the thing with that is that people are going to bash movies if they honestly don't like it you know so i i don't i guess what i don't right. get and about again, the article. i, I want to make it clear exactly i, I want to make it clear we shouldn't just we shouldn't just patently like a movie um Simply because it's original, because like you know, obviously we would just get crap all the time, um, and I guess I don't know. Well, because there is a I movie. guess I'm just trying to have my cake and eat it too. Because I love Brad yeah. Bird, and I don't think Tomorrowland was disappointing. So you know, whatever. And anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm taking up way too much time with this shit. So. No, but it, but it's but it's a it's a intro, it's a fun discussion for sure. You know, it's an impromptu discussions with Matt and Tim. <laughs> so this one is from Geekscape, and I uh, need to credit Jonathan London from Geekscape. I know him. He does a podcast on Geekscape. And it's another. It's a nerdy. Video game and I think movie. They talk about some movies uh, on the website, mainly like superhero stuff. But uh, I saw this on his Facebook page and I thought, oh well, it's pretty damn cool. And he made an interesting comment that I'll mention. I'll kind of paraphrase his comment after I read this little article here. But it turns out that they're going to be doing a remake of Big Trouble in Little China, and most of us would say. And actually, this is a movie that I think is a little overrated that I really didn't don't care about as much. But I will say that that movie does have charm that is still relevant now. You know, you can still go back and people who love the movie can go back and watch it now and and still get a kick out of it. You know, it's 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 a cult classic. It's like remaking The Evil Dead but tell, retelling Ash's story and having somebody else play Ash, you know, or or a different version of Ash. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. But I digress. So from this article here, The Rock to star in Big Trouble in Little China Remake. And this is written by Shane O'Hare. File this under why. Dwayne Johnson is currently in talks to star in a remake of the 80s cult classic. The Rock and his production company Seven Bucks Entertainment have been pitching the idea of a remake to Fox. No news or official word from Fox about the status of the talks... But it has been confirmed that X-Men First Class writers Ashley Miller and Zach Stentz have been assigned to the project. The Rock has said in the past that Big Trouble in Little China is one of his favorite movies. Well, that's obvious since he wants to bankroll the remake and star in it. The original Big Trouble in Little China never was a stellar box office hit, but it has become quote-unquote one of those movies that everyone from a diehard 80s fan to the movie geeks has seen multiple times. End all article quotes there. And Matt and I were talking about uh, this during pre-show, and what I mentioned to him is what I read from my buddy Jonathan London's Facebook, and he said that, that the whole point of Kurt Russell's character in Big Trouble in Little China is that he's not an action hero. He gets knocked out. He gets beat up. He gets punched in the face multiple times throughout the movie. And so why is there something like Dwayne Johnson that is associated with action movies to play the character? I mean, Kurt Russell, not until after Big Trouble in Little China, did he actually start playing big, uh, big, you know, action superheroes. I mean, I really don't even consider Snake Plissken as a big action hero. So, uh, Matt, anything you want to add? I know 
you had a little bit of uh, dialogue. Yeah, fuck early. them for re- for messing around with something that shouldn't be messed with. I mean, and and like you pointed out in the article, the first one is already only a cult favorite, so it's not like you're going to get the people from the cult to come back and think that the remake's going to be good and then magically suck in all these new people and start making money. It's not that kind of movie. And the movie that and the movie market that it was for is damn near 30 years ago, and if you look at it, it's definitely a product of its time. More to the point, most people would look at that movie today and go, "Holy shit, what a fucking racist pile of crap." Now, that doesn't stop it from being funny, but it does clearly tend to inflame certain people's, uh, you know, already thin skins and that's just going to bring a whole nother round of crap sure yeah not to mention not not to mention that even if you're willing to look past it for the entertainment value that it is and because it's not going out of its way to be racist necessarily but it is very stereotypical to a large degree um it's it's still something that like you were just mentioning the Rock is a huge action star, and he's definitely a big buff figure, and he's posing. And I'm not saying he's not a good actor or anything. It's not about that. But the thing about Jack Burton, okay, um, who was played by Kurt Russell, is that he's he kicks ass by accident. He is uh, he's full of bravado, and what makes him funny and somewhat likable is that everybody. It seems like everybody already knows how full of shit he is, except for him. And that's what makes him so endearing is because all the ass kicking he does is completely by accident. And so it's very Inspector Gadget in that way. Whereas you have someone like Ash, again, that Tim briefly mentioned in, you know, Army of Darkness or whatever. And he's kind of an asshole, but he's still likable because he legitimately kicks ass. So it's not even that kind of thing. So you're already miscasting it. And if you're going to miscast it that terribly, no amount of rewrites or changing or updates is going to fix that. Because that's kind of the heart of the movie in the first place. Um, so fuck them for fucking it up. Well, and, and I guess to be fair, we really don't know what path it's going to go down. But still. Fuck them for fucking it Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, this just in. I'm sorry, Tim. I didn't get a chance to tell you about this. Literally, I just happened to notice this and clicked on it. From Gizmodo.com via Kate Nibs. Oh, God damn it. Netflix is testing ads. This is literally from today, uh, the 1st of June at 2.52 p.m. There is an update at the end of this article. But So I'm only going to read the first part of this article instead of the rest so that we can get to the meat of it. <clears throat> Netflix. The, I'm sorry, let me start here at the beginning. Well, I suppose it was only a matter of time. Netflix is testing advertisements in its online streaming service. The company hasn't confirmed whether it will roll out ads on a wider scale. Yes, it has. I will get to that in a moment. But it's experimenting with showing advertisements for its own prob- programs at the beginning and ending of streaming content for people watching on Xbox 360. Motherboard's Jason Kobler uh, described the experiment as the, quote, HBO model, end quote, since it's only showing ads for its own original content, just like HBO does. 
quote, the company is only showing trailers for shows like Orange is the New Black and House of Cards. It has not attempted to sell third-party ads, and the company told me that, for the moment, only specific users in specific markets are seeing ads, end quotes, there. Um, At the end of the article, we do have an update. It says that Netflix says it has no intention of intentions of adding third-party ads, so it looks like we'll only have to deal with the native ads for its own original series, which isn't so bad. Quote, and this is a, a spokesperson of Netflix to Gizmodo, quote, we are not planning to test or implement third-party ad uh, advertising on the Netflix service. For some time, we've teased Netflix originals with short trailers after a member finishes watching a show. Some members in a limited test now are seeing teases before a show begins. We test hundreds of potential improvements to the service every year. Many never extend beyond that. And all quotes. Me, personally, on this, don't do it. Just It's a slippery slope. Don't do it. You already send out emails every time you log in, especially on your PC. You automatically get um, you already get promos. You already get previews that are right there at the top before you can even start scrolling to the content that it is that you want to see. So they have there is already more than enough information out there and and preview information and test stuff that gets people ready to see the shows and all of the stuff that's coming and the stuff that people already want to see. I would be pissed if I had to watch any kind of ad, even if it was Netflix, uh, even if it's Netflix original. So that's all I have to say there. Tim, anything you want to throw in? That would be annoying. Because for one thing, Netflix, you know, uh, when Netflix raised the price, they were like, okay, guys, we're, you know... We had to do this for a reason. Please understand. You know, we have to yada yada yada. But since if you're if you've been a member like a longtime member, you know you're, you get to keep this pricing for a little while. And so people were originally really pissed off because they had to pay more. But then it's like okay, well they're being nice and they understand that you know if you've been a customer for a long period of time, they're going to get a little bit of a perk. So you kind of trust them again, and now you kind of fall into relying on Netflix, and then now they're doing this shit. Yeah, it's just, it's annoying, man. When somebody starts praising something that pertains to big company, you know, whether it be a movie company, movie studio, a franchise, even like Star Wars, or like, look what Ghostbusters is starting to turn into. Anything like that. Once you start feel comfortable with it, they're going to try draining you for more money. I don't know, that's, that's how I feel. And I don't even know if that made any sense. <laughs> I think I understood what you were trying to do. Okay, cool. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead due to where we are on time. I'm going to go ahead and cut my news off there. So bring us home, sir. Okay, lastly here, somebody who I think is a legend. Um, we all know him. I mean, especially if you're in your 20s, 25, older. I mean, you you know this guy. I, I know well, since I was a kid, since Matt, you were a kid, this guy has worked on some of the best special effects movies Ever, And his name is Rick Baker. He is a special effects and makeup designer. And unfortunately, he is planning on retiring and auctioning off his collection of work. Uh, And this is from Entertainment Weekly. And the article is special effects and makeup designer Rick Baker to retire and auction off his collection written by Jonathan Dornbush. I've had a Dornbush once or twice. Thriller! 
Special effects and makeup artist Rick Baker, after seven Oscar wins, that's seven Oscar wins, and dozens of film, music, video, and television credits to his name, has announced plans to retire. But fans of his work have a chance to own a piece of deep legacy. Baker, who may be most widely known for creating Michael Jackson's iconic look in the Thriller music video, told radio station 89.3 KPCC of his intent to hang up the prosthetics and wigs after decades of memorable work. Quote, I said the time is right. I am 64 years old, and the business is crazy right now. I like to do things right, and they wanted cheap and fast. That is not what I want to do. So I just decided that it is basically time to get out, end quote. Baker clarified that he's not opposed to continuing to consult or pitch in on projects, but that he doesn't want to run such an involved operation as he has at Cinovation Studios. His career not only includes the memorable makeup worn from Thriller, but everything from alien designs in Men in Black to creature designs of Ron Perlman's Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Baker's last major project was work on last year's Maleficent, but because of the industry's shift to more CGI effects and less practical effect work, Baker's seen less of a need for his speciality. Quote, I could have done Maleficent in a garage, basically, end quote, Baker said of the project size. But Baker's work will live on, as over 400 pieces are set to be auctioned off by the prop store in California on May 29th. Everything from the Grinch's Santa hat costume from the 2001 live-action How the Grinch Stole Christmas to Harry's suit from Harry and the Hendersons will be available at the live auction. End all quotes. So, you know, we're going to be losing a Hollywood treasure behind the camera. So, Matt, comments, questions, concerns about this loss? Well, I'm sure as we get into our discussions of movies like San Andreas and Ex Machina, uh, it will become readily apparent why this is such a bad thing. Um, We need, we so desperate, and especially after Mad Max, we so desperately need practical effects. Um, and we desperately, I think even more so, we need practical makeup effects. And to lose someone of this caliber, not because of death, not because of retirement from age or infirmity, but literally because, you know... Everyone loves the general, and they all say General Who. I mean, it's just... It's pathetic. That's what it is. So I thought you were about to cry right then. It, you, I, I hear the <laughs> sadness. It is. It's sad. It, it is sad. Like, I was... I mean, we were having a little bit of fun with it last week when I was talking about the auction, but, I mean, I didn't realize it was because he's just selling all the schlock for because I guess maybe to fund his retirement or maybe at least in part maybe because he doesn't want to be reminded of how everything is going down the shitter <laughs> yeah it's uh, god it's just terrible just terrible <sighs> alright well then I guess let us move on from the news into copycat throwdown it's it's, it's 
The The Copy Copy Cat Cat Throwdown Throwdown That's right, it's the Copycat Throwdown Well, that's right, it's the Copycat Throwdown Stop it Stop it No, no, seriously, stop it Oh, right, like, stop repeating? Stop repeating, right Oh, okay I'm gonna kick your ass Throwdown this week on Copycat Throwdown, we have Annie from 1982 versus Annie from 2014. And as we all know, Annie, the 1982 film, is, is a straight-up musical. And it depicts the little orphan, uh, you know, little orphan Annie based on the Broadway musical, which was based on the movies from the 30s, which was based on... The comic strip from the 30s through the 60s, and which was actually based on a poem, which was based on an actual real girl. There was originally an actual inspiration for Little Orphant Annie, which was the poem, and thus from everything came. The film, though is generally regarded as a box office failure and definitely very highly critically derided for its day. However, it has since come, uh, grown into its own fan following, cult favorite, especially because so many kids enjoyed the film and have now passed it on to their kids. I am one. I, I enjoyed it as a kid. Um, and my girls absolutely love it now. But I will say that this particular version of the the 1982 version, I think, really goes to show why musicals fell out of favor for film. And it had good transitions. It was definitely something that was fun um, and good as a musical, even though they did take out some songs and they did change a few things because naturally your spectacle is larger. Uh, the budget was larger for the film at the time. But... It just didn't resonate with audiences because people because the the audiences had moved on um, and they needed something more than you know schlosky kind of uh, fun filler for their musical fare and they and they just weren't getting it and it kind of played out like a relatively cheesy live action Disney film. Disney that should have been animated. So, I can see why it failed. Although despite everybody pretty much saying, "Look, we did it for the paycheck." Carol Burnett is huge about admitting that. Um the guys who originally wrote the music and the lyrics for the Broadway musical were paid a huge sum of money for the rights, and they took the money and ran, and they of course regretted it. It still has resonated. After all these years, still fun. Um, I do like all of the. I do like the things that they incorporated from the comics into the film, and I do like the adorable little Eileen Quinn. And I'm sorry. I think Albert Finney just did a fantastic job as Daddy Warbucks. So it's not a perfect film, but I do enjoy it. And if I had to give it a rating, I would. I would probably put three stars, maybe even closer to three and a half. So for, for that one, for me, 
Um, the 2014 film, however, this is a film that is desperately trying to update the the whole Annie identity and unfortunately causes a massive identity crisis. It's a film that tries to be a contemporary film, it tries to be a musical, and it tries to be a self-aware contemporary musical film. And because it's doing that and constantly rotating and constantly trying to update, including lots of lyric changes for a lot of the different songs, but also incorporating songs that were deleted from the 1982 film, like NYC, that is actually from the musical, and reincorporating those. Um, all of the casting changes, which I didn't have a problem necessarily with those casting changes. I know there were people who were like, oh, I can't believe they made everybody black. And eh. that I think that... If you want to take the story and update it from Depression era New York, it would definitely be more about a spunky little redhead. But in today's day and age with foster kids, it would be much more likely to be African-American. So I don't see any problem there. Um, but, the move, but the movie, especially in the... Um, in the song department just really goes over the top um, in what is known as uh, ADR, automated or automatic uh, dialogue replacement. That is where they go back because when you're location shooting, sometimes it's just too hard to get the, to get the dialogue recorded properly uh, on the set or on the scene. So they come back after the shoot and they set you in a booth and then you redo your dialogue. Well, while it's pretty damn bad in the 1982 film because they were just doing it for like crowd noises and, and kids talking in general and stuff, this movie is absolutely terrible because it's just point blank. They just stop for the scenes with the dialogue and then as soon as they go into song, they just switch to the track. That was recorded in the studio. And it's just completely obvious. And dear God. You have all this money. You've got Jay-Z producing. You have Will Smith producing. You have Jadis Pinkett Smith producing. And you got to tell. You got to use auto-tune? Are you kidding me? Seriously? Really? You got $60 million. And you still got to use auto-tune? And, it's just, and then you have things where like. Miss Hannigan. Uh, comes in. And she's just totally. Uh, Cameron Diaz is a good actress, but I just this was a, just not a good role for her. I don't know if it was the way she was directed, if the way she interpreted the role, but instead of coming off as someone who is um, endearing despite all their character flaws, she just came across as annoying because of her character flaws. The, the way that she performed during her songs really even made it worse. Um, so... I just, yeah, I didn't like this one as much. Um, it's not a terrible, terrible movie. And I sat down with my girls and watched it uh, today. And they enjoyed it. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, they were kind of leaning towards the new one. But I think they wouldn't care. You pop down either one and they're going to sit around and sing. Sun will come out tomorrow. Whatever. Um, just, yeah, there was... The 2014 one is ridiculously predictable as well, um, and not because it's based on the, the you know the stuff from before. 
if I had to rate it, I would probably give this one two and a half stars uh, versus the three stars for the other one, maybe even three and a half for the other one. So my winner is going to be 1982's Annie. Go ahead, Tim. Agree? Disagree? Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I think you're going to agree. I'm probably going to be a little bit more harsh, <laughs> harsher because I didn't have, I was, I didn't have the influence of sweet little girls by my side enjoying the movie like you did. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let that pass. Um, there you go. So I okay. I respect 1982's Annie, and I respect it because it is completely opposite from. What I'm just about to tell you right now about the 2014's remake of Annie. Yes, the year itself remade Annie. Now, I'm a firm believer that if it ain't broke, you don't really need to fix it, you know? Or, most importantly, if you have to remake the movie, you don't have to change every single aspect of the movie. Now, like what Matt was saying, a lot of people got upset because of uh, the changes in race and all that stuff. And that doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I thought it was a great idea. You know, I think it would have it, it adds definitely a different perspective to the story. And if you were going to update it, it definitely works. However, I got the sense that they were trying to make both sides of the spectrum happy. You know, you have Annie, and then you have all these other white girls that are orphans as well. I mean, am I am I right? Were there any other African American orphans that were a part of her group? No, just yeah, her. just her. And the thing is, but, I mean, there were mixed race. There was there was one white girl, and then clearly, you know, like Hispanic Latina. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily nail it down, but I mean, they did have a nice blend. It was definitely very evenly cast. Yeah. Diversity. There you go. Unlike the 1982 movie. The orphans, they're just there to look pretty and to act, and that's pretty much it. They're, they, they don't add another level to the story. Unlike in the original, in the 1982 movie, the kids are in the movie, they're cute, they're sweet, they have more of a character, and they go to show you the two different worlds. They, they show you where uh, the, the world that Annie comes from, opposed to the world that Annie ends up where she goes to live with uh, Daddy Warbucks for a while. And you don't get that. I mean, when they modernized the movie, they still made it more like a fantasy. I think it comes across even more so as a fantasy nowadays because you know, because of life, that some orphanages, especially when you have a really bitchy, whatever her name is, or whatever she's called, you, I mean, you know the lifestyle. I, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that the lifestyle the kids were living in didn't fit Cameron Diaz's character. And I'm not saying it's Cameron Diaz's fault because if you're going to play Miss Hannigan, you have to be an ugly, disgusting human being. And I just think that character was brought to life poorly. And therefore it represented, especially with the arc direction, everything else just looked too pretty and clean. And that right there just causes a whole bunch of problems. I mean, again, the movie just feels more like a fantasy. Nothing really felt at stake. The only thing that made you feel like, oh man, I feel sorry for the girl, is because of her backstory. And they really play her backstory up throughout the entire movie. So whenever you get to the end of the movie, 
You know, you're supposed to be like, oh, she ended up with Daddy Warbucks. This is so sweet. But it never gets to that moment. Because I didn't care about them. So if it ain't broke, don't change every single aspect of the movie. Especially when it comes down to the music. I mean, there is nothing at all memorable about any of the songs. In fact, most of the songs, the beat ran together. And the great thing about the original Annie, and also the, the, the stage show Annie, is that you have these, this beautiful composition, and these songs have this particular zing that you just can't get out of your head. Honestly, I think these songs, they stand the test of time. They hold up now. You can do a modern version of Annie, and those songs work. Other than when they're referencing like the Depression and Herbert Hoover and stuff, like the old Shantytown, which I think is a fantastic song. They could have even incorporated that. And that's another thing that leads on to the two different worlds that she goes to. She's supposed to come from pretty much the orphanage equivalent to the slums and then she's in the you know she's in luxury she's supposed to like in the regular annie you know she goes to live with daddy warbucks who is a nice guy but he has a lot of money and he's you know dealing with rich guy stuff and then when she comes into his life this wholesome girl who's down on her luck, but she's super nice and super sweet and very optimistic. It's her optimism that breaks him down a little bit and, and allows him to like open up his heart, to open up himself to more people and become a genuinely nice man. And that leads me on to the characters. And yeah, I can say Cameron Diaz could have been a better Hannigan, but the meat and bones, the backstory of the movie is Daddy Warbucks. Because when he starts to lower his guard down and opens himself up to Annie, that's when the audience opens themselves up to Daddy Warbucks. And the problem with Stax, who uh, is Jamie Foxx's character, is that when you first meet him, you really don't know who the bad guy is. Is the bad guy Miss Hannigan? Or is it the Stax guy? Because to be honest, Stax is worse than Miss Hannigan. The really shitty things, like whenever, you know, his comments about the homeless people food, it's disgusting. You know, this guy is an asshole. Why should I care about him? And that that's the thing. That's what makes Albert Finney's uh, representation so great is because you can tell he's like a hard-headed kind of like straightforward thinking man. But you can, I mean, there's more of like, you know, oh, I can kind of see where he's coming from he's not a bad guy Stax is a very petty man and in my book I just can't feel sorry for them or I really don't care about what happens with them and uh, you know or, or his happiness by the end of the movie I'll just bluntly say it I guess and I think the absolutely worst thing you can say about a musical is that the songs are unmemorable and not unique whatsoever. To me, this is the Annie remake. It's bland. It's not unique. It doesn't feel like the movie is, you know, they're, 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 nobody's having fun doing it. Because the first 25 minutes of the movie, you, there's like a, all the, there's a ton of all these quick cuts. You can tell that they reworked a, like multiple scenes and they probably even played around with the story in the editing room. To me, it didn't feel like that this wasn't how the final product was meant to be. And it's an absolute shame because with the 1982 Annie, you have great performances. 
I mean, for one thing, Bernadette Peters and Tim Curry, the most memorable part of the entire movie are those two characters singing Easy Street with uh, Carol Burnett. Absolutely hilarious. Each character is different. There's a defining good guy. There's a defining bad guy. You see the character change with Daddy Warbucks, with Little Annie. And it's just damn sweet and charming and wonderful. And yeah, the movie's not perfect. But by God, I mean, I would be, I would love to sit down with my kids and watch that one. And you know, like Matt's kids, they're probably not going to like it as much because it's an older movie. And they can relate more to the newer Annie movie. But... I know in my heart that it is the better movie. It could be because John Huston directed the movie and Will Gluck, who directed Easy A and Fed Up, which is also called F.U., as well as Friends with Benefits, directed the Annie remake. And then you also have the producers with the Annie remake. The Jay-Z did the music, Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith. I, I, I don't know. So I think people were just reaching for too many different apples in a pear tree. So obviously, copycat throwdown, I award the winner to 1982's Annie. Awesome. All right. Well, next week we are going to be doing a cool kick-ass three squared. And we are going to be covering songs that make you think of movies. So, and, and we're not going to be doing movies uh, or songs that were um, specifically written for a film. So don't worry about things like The Lion King or I've Had the Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing or something like that. Those were songs writ- uh, written specifically for those films. We're talking about soundtrack films. So, for instance... Um, a pretty obvious one, I think, that most people who are into film would remember would be um, Unchained Melody should, would, would make you think of Ghost before it would make you think of anything else. So uh, it, it's those kinds of songs. Songs that whenever you hear them, you don't think of anything else but the movie that you remember hearing it in. And with that, I believe it is time for... The movies. All right, folks. This week's films are San Andreas, Ex Machina, and Rabbit Proof Fence. So, where do you want to start there, Tim? How about uh, Rabbit Proof Fence? All right, Rabbit Proof Fence. This is a 2002, yeah, 2002 Australian drama film. It's directed by Philip Noyce. It's based on the book Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence by Doris Pilkington Garamara. And it stars um, no one that you've heard of with the exception of Kenneth Branagh. Oh, wait, I take it back. Um, Oh, the guy who... Is is the John Connor in the new Terminator film? He has a very small. Uh, he has a he has a minor he's role the, in like this a, film as well. Not a bounty hunter, but he's like the sheriff. He's like the local Jason Clark. All right, so this is a film, and it is basically based upon the true story of a young lady uh, and her sister and cousin back in 1931. They were taken from their mother. Uh, from the remote town of Jigalong, 
in Australia, and they were taken 1,500 miles away where, uh, to, to a resettlement facility because they were considered half-castes. Now, this was the nice way of this was the nice way that Australian referred to half aborigine and half white children. Uh, so instead of calling them half breeds, they called them half castes. And the idea was to essentially breed them out. Um, and they did that, they were doing that by uh, teaching these children how to be domestic servants because they didn't want them to be uh, savages stuck out in the middle of nowhere. Um, to the, left to their own devices. So these, this young lady and her sister and her cousin um, are, are basically taken from their mothers and gone 1,500 miles away. And then they literally escape the camp and on foot <laughs> go all the way back. This is a remarkable story, and it is interesting to see the film play out. Now, I did notice, though, that this, this was from 2002. Um, I want to give a quick shout-out, by the way, because this whole, the whole reason we're watching this film is because of my cousin Joel. And he, 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 he does apparently listen to the show, so thank you very much for listening. And it was upon his suggestion that I talked to Tim, and we started doing that, so... Joel, this review is for you. Um, I've, I found that this film is definitely a family. It's more family-oriented. Um, and while it is a very interesting story and certainly highlights uh, what is known as the stolen generations in Australia, because they did this for years. They just took kids away, stripped them away from their families. Um and all the way up into the 70s, this, this was happening in Australia. Um, it definitely was not done as brutally as it could have been. And, I, and, and despite its wide scope, I found it to be very uneven in terms of pacing and timing. I don't necessarily say that it was... I don't want to say that it was too long exactly. I think that the time was just used poorly. And I think that they that there are certain places where instead of shortening it, I think they could have done, they could have gone into more detail of the characters and how they were represented. Uh, how they were represented. Kenneth Branagh plays a gentleman by the name of A.O. Neville and he is basically the lord protector of the aborigine people. And they do a lot of interesting things with his character to kind of show you just how off the rails he was in terms of his thinking, and even though it was the way they all thought at the time. But they make him out briefly because of the time they spend elsewhere. They kind of make him out to be a little bit more of a monster than he really was in real life. It's not to say that his views were good. No, 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 no. But they do, and they, his character does and says certain things that, when you look at the life of Ao Neville, um, were a little bit out of character for the actual man. And it wasn't done for dramatic effect because they didn't really spend any time on it. So it was just kind of there, I think, to be more narrative. Um, I think that 
the way that they kind of cap the ending of the film, they should have instead kind of drawn out, or not even drawn out, I think they should have spent more time just kind of documenting what really happened to Molly Craig, um, which is the anglicized name that she was given. This poor woman manages to get all the way back and she is then they they immediately of course they got to go run away and hide because they're just going to get taken taken again so unfortunately due to some circumstances that happened throughout the movie I don't want to spoil everything for you her her cousin doesn't make it back it's her and her sister make it back and within 3 or 4 years she's been married and she has now had a couple of kids of her own. And they take them all. They take her and her two children, and they take her all the way back to that damn same camp 1,500 miles away. And then she has to leave her three-year-old daughter with local relatives like in the area, and then she sneaks off again with her baby and goes all the way back again. And by the time that the girl that heard that infant turns three, they're able to rustle that baby up Again, she go, so she, this girl has experienced this being ripped away from her mother, then having her and her children ripped away uh, again, where she has to separate from one of them and only makes it back. And then a third time, they take her last remaining child. And she never gets to see that daughter ever again, her youngest daughter. She's never, because what they did when, when they took her and took her back to that camp, she was three. By the time she was old enough, it was going on. They told her she was an orphan. And she spent the remaining years of her life separated from her mom. And I mean, there's more to it. I'm sure there's more to it than that. But that was just with the with the amount of um, research I was able to do on it. And it's just there's so much amazing content there to shed light on the injustices of that time that I think they could have had a much better time spending more time telling those interesting stories instead of just kind of dumbing it down. Um, For example, the girls, you you know, you can't travel 1,500 miles in one pair of shoes and they look good by the end, you know, or that you would even have them by the end. Uh, I think your clothes might be in a lot worse repair. So they... You know, they they do things, again, I guess maybe for the sake of family entertainment. Um, I I do, however, think it's a good story. And there are some really interesting cinematic elements. So I give this one three and a half, 3.5. But it is definitely not without its flaws. And it's a very interesting story. What do you got, Tim? Yeah, this movie has been on my radar for a while, even though I thought it was starring Kiefer Sutherland. But it's a very good movie, and like what Matt said, this does fall more into family entertainment, kind of like the film Amazing Grace, with uh, Albert Finney's actually in that one, Uh, and I forget the guy who's in it. Uh, He's in San Andreas. He plays the asshole boyfriend, or husband, or whatever. He's in it. It's about the writer of Amazing Grace. Well, that movie, which pertains to slavery could have been a whole lot worse than what it was. And they made the movie because they wanted, not necessarily families to watch it, but I think they wanted kids to watch it. 
you know, so they can understand the history without having to be subjected to uh, brutal, grotesque violence. So I'm I'm not too sure why they took this path with uh, rabbit-proof fence to completely make it kid-friendly, but I'm kind of glad it did because I think this is a type of movie that people need to watch, especially people uh, who live in uh, in Australia. And I'm sure I'm sure this is a movie that they show in in their schools and whatnot. And I totally know that this is something that they study when they're in school. And it's just a very fascinating movie. The history itself is fascinating, if not equally shocking. And once you start looking more into the history of Australia, they have a pretty fucked up history as well uh, in in various aspects, not just with the Aborigines, but uh, especially when it came to war. Another another great movie to watch about how kind of the short end of the stick that uh, that the Australians had uh, has received is Gallipoli about the Battle of Gallipoli during World War One. The Europeans just kind of had. You know, the Australians were there. Let's just send the Australians in before we send everybody else in. You know, and the Australians got fucking wiped out. It was horrible. They lost so many men. And that's just a really dark period of the history as well as this one. With saying all that, I understand that it's, uh, you know, there's there's no violence or anything like that. Everything is done very tastefully. I did want to see more. And this is where kind of my review, it's a little difficult to uh, really critique it because the movie was done in a very beautiful way. And if you are one that is sensitive to material like this, you're going to be glad that this movie was made the way it was. But I'm kind of also a fan of something more realistic, like what Matt said. I wanted to see more of the hardship, you know, the hardships they would have gone through during that trek. I'm sure they've encountered some really horrible things along the way. But, to be fair, I haven't even read the book either. Maybe the book doesn't even include all that stuff. Because maybe her mother didn't tell her, her daughter, every single detail that happened. Or maybe it was out of respect for her that, the, that you know, this movie doesn't you know, go in completely into detail about all the horrific things that happened uh, in, in Molly's life. But it would have been interesting to see more of that journey. If not more of that journey, then a little peek at the two other journeys that she went on a few years later, like what Matt was talking about. But with saying that, it is still a fascinating movie, great performances, fantastic glimpse of a really dark period in a country's history. So I give this one four out of five. All right, four out of five. Uh, Then where would you like to go from here, sir? How about uh, Ex Machina? Ex Machina. Okay, this was an interesting movie. This is a sci-fi thriller. A British sci-fi thriller, actually, 2015. And it is directed by Alex Garland. And it stars uh, Domhnall Gleeson, Alicia Vikander, Sonoya Mizuno, and Oscar Isaac. And basically, this is about a young programmer who works for Blue Book, which is basically like uh, this film's version of Google. And he ends up going and, you know, winning, if you will, a trip to go and a a retreat to go and see the creator, the, the CEO, president, whatever, of Blue Book. 
Um, and he is there for a rather unconventional Turing test. And for those of you who are not familiar, Turing test is basically uh, designed so that you are talking to a computer. You do not know you're talking to a computer, but you're talking to a computer. And if you can tell that it's a, that, that it's a, uh, a computer, then the computer itself fails the Turing test. If you think you're talking to a human, it passes, and thus it qualifies for artificial intelligence. And basically it takes that whole idea, combines it a little bit with uh, Android, so to speak, and not the operating system, but an actual Android, and uh, gives you, and then turns it completely on its head. Now, this film, I think it mistakes um, cinematography for timing and exposition, and consequently is very, very slow. And this film was way too long. I'm like at least 20 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes too long. Seriously, it's just way too long. It's also, it also falls into the trap of being ridiculously predictable. And it's using, instead of using character motifs, it's using character tropes. And so it makes it very, very hard for such an interesting and dynamic story with a very interesting payoff to really play out in an organic way. And instead, you're just kind of waiting for the next thing to happen and waiting for the next thing to happen and wishing that it would. Um, There's also a lot of unnecessary... um, objectification of women in this so to speak and sexualization and not to exemplify the character or characters involved in said objectivity like i was to a certain degree defending mad max fury road this one has no excuse and it doesn't fit in again instead of using motifs it's using tropes and to a ridiculous end on that regard. It's still a really interesting idea and it is a it is definitely something where the vision was there, I just think it faltered heavily on the execution. To that end, I give this one 2.75. Now, this definitely qualifies as I'm, you know, quote I'm the only one who hated it. It's got great reviews and scores on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic and what have you, including audience scores. But I think that for something that attempts to be cerebral, it's it's just pandering to the lowest common denominator. 2.75, better than okay, didn't quite like it. What do you got, Tim? I thought it was a good movie, though I thought the movie was trying to be a little too... Cerebral or thought-provoking than what it actually was, and that is never a fun thing. It's like like Interstellar, but unlike Inception, where Inception is very thought-provoking, but it the incorporation of all that stuff was smooth 
and you really weren't expecting anything to really come out of it, you know, other than, oh, your basic story, and then all of a sudden the ending, you're like, oh, wow, oh, let's talk about this, ah. Yeah, or same thing with the Jake Gyllenhaal movie Enemy, but whereas, you know, those movies, Interstellar, they're throwing all this information at you, and you're like, okay, ooh, where's it going to go with this? Where's it going to go? Wait, is something going to happen? And then, oh. And that's how I felt with, in, in a way, not to the same extent with Ex Machina, where they're building this movie up, and I'm like, and then then I got to a point where it's like, okay, well, I know where this movie could go. Oh man, but no, they're not going to do this. This movie is smart. The ending is going to not necessarily blow me away, but I think it might be a little thought provoking, and then. You know, it's just going to end really good. And what does it do? It does virtually exactly what I thought it was going to do. It just took a little bit more time than I expected to do it. (laughs) And honestly, that is my biggest concern and really my only concern. I mean, a lot of stuff goes unexplained. Not necessarily the story itself, but open-ended things that really... You know, like at the time when you when you first hear about it, it's like, okay, well, that's a great plot element or, or story device. And then, or, or even like a characterization, like um, Oscar Isaac's character. You really don't know what to really think about him towards the end of the movie. Then there's nothing to think about it because, you know, the, the movie's over. And, well, I, don't, I can't really, I don't want to spoil anything because I know a lot of you probably haven't seen it yet. But once... The problem I had, once I realized what the issue that I had what pertained to the ending, well, it kind of trickled down through the rest of the movie as well. Because you have the build-up to the ending, and that build-up included all this stuff that was supposed to lead to something, and then it didn't. So it just kind of, the end, you know, what ended up happening kind of tainted everything else. I'm probably sounding like I absolutely hate it, I'm going to give it a horrible rating, but I'm not. It's it's definitely more of an annoyance because I watched the movie and I thoroughly enjoyed it, or, or maybe not thoroughly, but I, I very much enjoyed it from beginning to end. I could have watched, you know, sat there even longer watching it. I thought the performances were really good. I thought the effects were really good on a smaller budget. I just thought it was cool. There was definitely a cool feeling, a cool tone to it. But it is not what you expect based off the marketing and probably what you read on a synopsis. It's not like that. And that can probably add to why why I feel this way towards it. Good performances, very interesting story. It does raise some very interesting questions. And the science behind it is fascinating and very true to actual real science in various ways. 3.5. All right, so last but not least, then, it is going to be San Andreas, a 3D disaster film directed by Brad Payton, uh, stars Dwayne Johnson, Carla uh, Gugino, Alexandra Daddario, <laughs> or Daddario, uh, Ion Griffud, uh, Archie Punjabi and Paul Giamatti. Now, this is a movie I did end up seeing this one in the whole XD 3D thing. Um, de- very decent 3D. Uh, so if you're into it and you want to spend the extra money, I think it's, you're not going to be upset by that. This is a film, though, that definitely is light on the science (laughs) 
And having just come out of a year's worth of geology and talking to my buddy uh, Rob, who is actually a geophysics major. So we had a lot of fun discussing this film. This is definitely just a your standard popcorn fair um, disaster movie. The special effects are really, really good. Tons and tons of CGI. Unfortunately, some of it, it, it's not evenly applied. So, for instance, at the very beginning of the movie, it's pretty fucking terrible. And then it gets pretty darn good by the midpoint and then kind of falters in the last 20 minutes. But doesn't get as bad as it was at the very beginning. Um, the acting is decent um, all the way around. Nothing special. Nothing really too terrible. They actually cast. There, there's like a kid in there, and they actually did pretty good casting on it uh, of the kid. They try to stay away from too much sappy stuff. So there's there's really only one little scene uh, of like the old couple who embrace as they're about to die. So you know. So, definitely great popcorn fare, but, you know, just don't walk into this movie expecting anything great. Just sit back, turn off the brain, eat the popcorn, enjoy the 3D, and you'll probably have a pretty decent time. Uh, If you want to break down the science, get a hold of me on Twitter, send us an email, and we can have fun discussing the finer points of that. The um, minor spoiler here, and this something this is something I was I was actually going to give this movie like three and a half stars, but I have to knock down a quarter star for the ending of the film. So I'm going to spoil a little bit of the ending. So you want to maybe drop out for a minute and come back where Tim can pick up. Uh, the daughter of the Rock and his wife, his estranged wife, she actually kind of dies in this in the movie and I was really impressed that he couldn't save her and so I was actually kind of like wow they're actually gonna let her die that's fantastic because I thought it really added it actually added a layer of of, of, a good solid layer dimension to the film and then no I can't let her go I can't lose this one too and then miraculously saves her okay whatever that was really disappointed with that and that actually cost a quarter star so at the end of the day 3.25 for me on san andreas bring us home there tim for the record i'm bumping up my ex machina score to 3.75 just make it a four i thought for sure you were gonna get a four or four no 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 3.75 all right, 3.7. Oh, Go ahead. Oh, it, oh, it's so much of a hassle. Oh. It's not that. It's not it's not worth 3.75. But I'm not you. No, so. no, 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 no. There you go. All right, what do you got, right. sir? So San Andreas, I went into this movie knowing exactly what I was getting myself into. <laughs> Which was pretty much to see dazzling destruction, mayhem, Hollywood style, and pretty much no in-depth characters and plot whatsoever. But I left the movie theater, and I went and saw it at the Arclight over here in Hollywood, the Cinerama Dome, where the screen kind of sort of wraps around you. It's, It's a great theater. Four movies like this. And I left that movie theater feeling two things. One, I was confused. And two, I left feeling a little disappointed. Still, 
I was confused because I couldn't believe that what I just saw actually took one hour and 50 minutes of screen time to go through. Because other than the mass destruction, or people running away, and the forced character work, nothing really happens. At all. I mean, there just really wasn't too much to experience. And I left the movie feeling disappointed, because if you've seen The Day After Tomorrow, or The Earthquake, or 2012, or Godzilla, or any other Roland Emmerich movie, you've pretty much already saw this movie, uh, San Andreas. And I say that because the only new stuff that it has to offer to the natural disaster genre of films is Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and some of the best buildings crumbling, toppling over effects that you've ever seen. God, just watching this building fall over next to The Rock's character's ex-wife as she's on top of the building, and, you know, there's a shot where she's just looking over it stunned. As it's, I would probably do the same thing, because that is one freaking huge-ass building, like, toppling over, you know, just hundreds of yards away from you. But I don't know if I actually would have been paying attention long enough to notice it because the building I was currently on was falling apart as it was. But you've also seen every single one of these characters and their particular stories in uh, in some of these movies as well. And usually those stories and characterizations were done better. For example, the characters and story elements regarding the new man in the woman's life and uh, the so the rock's why you know the rock and his wife are getting a divorce and she's already with a new man a rich guy who just so happens to be an architect who's building the biggest building in San Francisco. Well, she's with him and she loves him, but the rock feels weird about him. You know, gets this weird vibe, and it turns out he's an asshole. Well, that same story element can be found. Not the same exact one, but a very you know similar one where it adds more to that adds humor and some characterization to the story, is 2012. San, uh, San Andreas, that character's played by Ian Gruffund, or Gruffund, and in 2012, that's portrayed by Thomas McCarthy. And also the story element of a hero who lost one of his two daughters due to drowning. Not necessarily that particular story element, but that kind of idea like, oh my god, the hero lost something and it's forever affected his character. But just so happens he has somebody else to replace to help him overcome that feeling of loss, whether it be like a San Andreas, his daughter, or in another movie where, you know, it's somebody's dog. Like what Matt was talking about at the end of San Andreas, his first daughter died of drowning, which he was there to witness. Then, at the end of the movie, his other daughter is about to drown, and he witnesses it. And it just kind of feels cheap. But then even Paul Giamatti's seismologist character, and how his scenes are structured, reminds me of Ian Holmes' character as the uh, climate research scientist character in, uh, in The Day After Tomorrow. Now, I like Paul Giamatti, but... His character was basically just there to tell you what the fuck was going on and to explain that, oh man, all this stuff is happening because this is a giant earthquake. And then five minutes later, oh, San Francisco, better prepare. There's a big one coming. Ten minutes later, oh God. Oh, I hope he just, he's basically in the movie to add tension for what's happening to all these other characters. And that's pretty much it. But when it comes down to it, 
this is a film that is geared towards the casual moviegoer that doesn't mind dropping some 15 bucks for the price of admission. I mean, there, there were a couple people in the audience that thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I could audibly hear their gasps and their comments to one another and their cheers. Uh, were, I mean, they, it was all just quite audible. Now, if that doesn't sound like your character, I'm not saying that it's cheap laughs or cheap thrills. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I'm very nitpicky when it comes to these kind of movies. Um, and if you're, again, and if you're like, if you're like that, if you're like me, then prepare yourself for cool effects, decent filmmaking, bad characterizations, crummy story elements, poor screenwriting, and a whole lot of missed opportunities. Honestly, in my opinion, this film just wasn't dazzling or engrossing enough to be an entertaining spectacle. You know, nor was the story meaty enough or the characters flushed out enough to be a moving kind of like disaster epic with drama, with heavy drama or tragedy. Kind of like Armageddon or Deep Impact. Um, and I mentioned like, uh, the day after tomorrow, as a you know, I, I think I still think that's a pretty decent disaster flick because you have relatable characters, you have decent story arcs and characterizations, and all. And despite you know the the special effects or the ridiculousness of the movie, it's still an entertaining movie. Like Independence Day, it's still an entertaining movie. So I think some people will enjoy it, and if you can pay you know seven bucks or whatever to go see it on the big screen. I think it would be worth it because, you know, it's an hour and 50 minute runtime and it kind of felt like it was only 30 minutes. So it couldn't have been that bad. I will give this movie 2.5 out of 5. There you have it. And uh, yes, to the uh, comparison to The Day After Tomorrow. I mean, it, it really is hard to beat dialogue like the air. It looks so clean. <laughs> but I suppose, you know, if any movie could do it, it would have to be San Andreas. Anyway, all right. So next week's movies are going to be, we're doing a kind of a, a horror movie run at you here. We've got Insidious Chapter 3, The Babadook, and Zombievers. Yeah. All right, so uh, Insidious Chapter 3 is going to be in the theaters, and then the other two movies will be on Netflix. And so I think we are now at the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash cries of solace as for us we of course are the sls cast and you can find us at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can even follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can follow me this is matt on twitter at nitwit12345 of course you can get aboard that information superhighway and track down tim on twitter if you are so inclined and of course you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Jamie Foxx, Tim's favorite actor, <laughs> I get to say this. If you look at how long the Earth has been here, we're living in the blink of an eye. So whatever it is you want to do, you go out and do it. Talk to you guys next week.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.